Hello, and welcome to the Fuzzy Logic Science Show. I'm Tom Street, and today I have with me Michael, Professor Michael Gen- Genian. Gen- How do you pronounce that? Genians. I Genians. think I had uh, ancestors that couldn't spell Jenison. Okay. <laughs> so Michael um, is an evolutionary or behavioral ecologist from the Research School of Biology at the Australian National University, ANU. Thanks so much for coming on the show today. Michael. Pleasure to be here. Uh, so where should we start off? Uh, but, what is an a, a evolutionary or behavioural ecologist? Well, I think behavioural ecology is, I sometimes describe it as being an economist who's studying animal behaviour and how animals make economic decisions. So if you think about how animals have evolved over millions of years, there's been this constant selection for individuals that are good at reproducing and getting their genes into the next generation. And that requires making decisions, some of them conscious decisions, others just simply decisions that in a, uh, in a subconscious way about how you respond to specific stimuli. So when you see a predator, at what distance should you run away from the predator versus carry on feeding, all kinds of cost-benefit decisions. So that's really what behavioral ecology is about, is working out how animals are going to behave. Based based on the evolutionary drivers, I, I yeah. guess, that, that shape the, the underlying genetics that drive the, the yes. behavior. Yes, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's basically where it's at. Okay. Um, so I think that's a fascinating subject. Um, uh, would you like to talk about what you're working on at the moment? Or? Um, sure. So at the moment, we've got a slightly unusual study for us. So we're working on cognition in fish. And so we are making various measurements of how the fish uh, are able to learn a task or then unlearn the task, their ability to navigate a maze, um, their ability to overcome a, uh, a desire to do something and show some restraint. So those are the kind of things we, we are testing them on and their ability to perform these acts. So if we do all these different so fish, tests... you've got fish yeah. that can navigate a maze. Yes. Yeah, yeah, fish are pretty smart and they can, they can definitely learn. So the, the stereotype of the right. stupid goldfish is I guess like a fish, bad one. Like if you think about a fish in an onshore environment, there's all sorts of rocks and hollows and stuff and they have to learn... They run away from a predator. They zoop down like a little hole that they're probably familiar with. So, exactly, that would be an important. Um, yeah, many fish I think know their their territories extremely well, their home ranges, and they know exactly where to go. Yeah. So, so in this case, the idea of the study is simply to get an overall measure of the cognitive abilities of the fish and at specific individuals. So we're looking at different individual fish. And then getting a rank of which are the smart ones and which are the not so smart ones. And then we're going to try and relate that to their reproductive success, how many offspring they produce. And that's again talking about behavioral See, the ecology. Smart fish have more kids. Exactly. Because that's if if the if the characteristic has evolved and is favoured by natural selection or sexual selection we would expect to see it linked with the number of offspring you produce. So if you're good at a maze. So is it does that correlate it? it uh, we don't have the results yet. Oh, okay. <laughs> but I, I would have thought you'd have more kids if you're good at mazes because you'd be good at running away from predators and navigating yes. around your environment. So, yes. It, so this is maybe a really interesting theme to bring in at this point is you would assume that for any for a characteristic like navigating a maze or learning to associate a particular color with food, sure, you'd think the better you are at that, the better you'll do in life. But the catch always in behavioral ecology, as in economics, is that there are trade-offs. Being very good at one thing might mean that you have to sacrifice resources you devote to something else. 
and that could actually yep. come at a cost. So it's the net combination of everything that really matters. So it's not immediately obvious that being good at solving mazes will necessarily lead to the, you producing the greatest number of offspring. If you, for example, do that and sacrifice reproducing because you spent all your effort learning yep. and none of it reproducing, then you won't have more yeah. offspring. Right, and, and you're studying them in a tank, I'm guessing? Yeah, yeah. Yes, with so a maze. And... and um, the, in your tank environment, is there any benefit to be able to navigate the maze if there's no, say, predators? No, in in and of itself, there, there isn't. The So what we do in these particular tests is that at the opposite end of the maze, they can see a group of fish, and these fish prefer to shoal be in groups with other fish, so they don't want to be on their own. So their incentive to get through the maze is to get to the other fish. So, of course, there are no predators in the tank, so they could just hang out on their own, but they have clearly evolved in a situation where their natural propensity is to associate with other fish. So we assume that the drive to do so is going to lead to them wanting to get through the maze to the other fish. Right. So you rank them, okay, this one's better at getting through the maze and the other one's worse. Yep. And then you just chuck them in a tank together and see which ones have the most kids yeah basically yeah, yeah. I, I i i'm sure i could present it and make it sound more sophisticated but i think that's the simple truth yes yeah. so and and of course that's the bit we're still waiting on because that's an expensive process to uh, collect the paternity information we mm. need to let the males and females interact then we have to wait for the females to give birth collect the babies uh, sample them and then send them off for genotyping so that we can do the paternity testing and see which baby has which or which which male side which baby right and i believe you do a lot of work with fish is that right yes yeah. so yeah. we mainly work on fish at the moment in the yeah. lab that's the main yeah. study system and, and, and do you have any interesting findings uh from from work you do have results from well we've done so many studies over the years i always forget uh <laughs> what we found so the one interesting thing we had in these fish is that we had a relationship between the male's gonopodium length. So immediately I should say what a gonopodium is. The gonopodium in these fish they are is a fin, a modified fin that they use to inseminate females. So if you like, it's basically a fish penis. Right. So these are little fish that we work on called uh, mosquito fish or gambusia. You'll find them all over Canberra in summer in the in the ponds and streams there are introduced uh, fish they are from the southern u.s northern okay, mexico but they find them their way up um different like sullivan's creek like the different drains and they're stuff. in sullivan's creek they're yeah. in bruce ponds they're in they're everywhere they're yeah. a they're a terrible pest yeah species they're one of the most invasive fish species in the world right so they occur and they're, everywhere. they're tiny little things they're tiny they? maybe two to three centimeters right and um they are live bearers, so they give birth to, to babe, live babies that don't okay, lay eggs. Rather than eggs, yeah. Yeah, they're a little bit like the guppies you might have seen. it. Well, in the good old days when the dentist used to have a fish tank for you to look at before uh, yeah. he inflicted pain on you. But I guess the fact that they're so, I guess they're really resilient, so that makes them a good study organism. Yes, in, in theory they're very resilient, yeah. 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 Well, okay. Sometimes they seem to be a bit more sensitive than we'd like, but okay. generally speaking they are pretty tough little fish, so yeah. which makes them a very suitable lab animal. And again, right. they're, they're a pest species, so taking them out of the wild is not really a... A concern. I think most people would be very happy that you are removing them. Sure. Although yeah. it doesn't make a dent on the population sure. at all because they're such prolific breeders. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, so to go back, we basically they have an external uh, modified fin, which is a bit like a looks like a little sword, 
and they use that to inseminate the female. And one of the studies we did showed that the females actually prefer to mate with males that have a relatively longer gonopodium, relatively longer penis than, than, than other males. So that was one, one strange little finding we had along the way. Did they have longer pen, like... Uh, gonopodium is gonopodium the technique. But it's essentially a fish penis, penis. penis. Yeah. Thing. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So that was a, a kind of a, a fun result. The, the longer... The longer, the better. Is, yes. Sorry, is that it? In this case, yes. Yeah, that was okay. essentially what we found. Right. And we've, we've, so this was done in simple, and the initial study was simply like a two-choice trial where you'd put a male on either end of a tank behind a barrier, yep. and the female could then choose who she associated with. And we modified the size of the, the gonopodium. Oh, which we can you modified do, it. How? You can snip it. Which oh. again, that might sound horrible to people, but I know, I know. But, but you <laughs> have to remember, no. no, because it's because you've got to remember it's um, it's a modified fin, oh, so okay. it does it doesn't have nerves There's on no it. Nerves. Okay. And and if, if anyone was even slightly worried about this, these males instantly carry on with their usual behaviour. Yeah, um, they're extremely. Um, I don't know what the quite the right word would be, but they're extremely persistent in their attempts to mate. They are an unusual species in that there isn't much courtship. A lot of fish will have males will court females. In these fish, the males just constantly move up behind a female and try to forcibly inseminate her. Um, so they, they are very persistent, which is one reason they're good to work on is we get a large amount of um, reproductive and mating behavior. So there's a lot of data to record. Yep. Um, so, so you're saying... The females choose the male with the bigger penis fin thing. Yes, yeah. they did in this in this two choice who they chose to associate with. And then in subsequent studies, we've also looked at the relationship between the relative size of the male's gonopodium, correcting for his body size. In other words, okay. is it larger or smaller than average for his body size? And uh, in one study, we did find a positive relationship between that and the male's mating success. But not in all studies, I hasten to add. So, so I'm wondering why you think that is and and also why you chose to study that in the first place <laughs> that's <laughs> a very good like question an, yeah. i i can't quite remember why we decided to study it uh to be honest um because it was like a funny analogy to people and oh maybe there probably would have been a little there probably would have a little been a little bit of that yeah. but i think have also you confirmed yeah. for once and for all that size matters is that, <laughs> is that, is that about? <laughs> well we do have another study on humans we did a, a, a decade back which was about yeah. that which we could perhaps return to later okay. <laughs> but um no the, so maybe the reason why we looked at it is one of the um overriding themes in behavioral ecology if you're interested in sexual selection um, differences in reproductive success because of male-male competition for access to females or females choosing males or sperm from different males competing one of the overriding themes is how males signal their quality to females and a lot of that signaling is basically related to having a larger than average signal for your body size. Right. So one so of the traits be could be that to um, like a peacock exa tail. Exactly. So males have the yep. magnificent, massive tail that's completely useless, and it's just saying, "Hey, I mean, what's the theory?" Is is it's sometimes know, called the handicap principle? I, I survive despite having this ridiculous it, thing, right? Yeah. So the exactly. same could apply to the. 
So lots of studies have been done looking at, at uh, secondary, sexual, secondary sexual characteristics like the peacock's tail or the yeah. brightness of your plumage or the size of the crest on your, your head if you're a bird or the, deep, yeah. the deepness of your croak if yeah. you're a frog. Yeah. And we thought, well, what about primary sexual traits as well, such as, as, as genital size? Yeah. Could those also be traits so, that provide information to females? Right. Okay, so you're, you're postulating that, that the females look at this and it's... Um, it's just a sign of like, like that yeah. the males. Uh, so usually, what the explanation like conspicuous is conspicuous consumption in humans. I mean, maybe it's the, <laughs> the ana- analogy. Like I yeah. managed to have this huge house and this nice car and all and of I, this stuff that I don't really need, but it just shows that my capacity to and I can still put produce, food on the table. Yeah, yep. put food on the table. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas, yep. like in a in a fish, it's like I managed to have a like a big protuberance. Yep. Yeah. 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 Exactly, it's that idea, and it's often in in the biological context, it is described as a trait that signals your ability to accrue and use resources. So, yeah. in other words, if a male was very good at accruing lots of resources, yeah. he can then invest more into characters that signal his ability to accrue resources. Yeah. So, these are called condition dependent characters. So, in other words, his body condition goes up because he accumulates more resources yeah. than than the average. And therefore, he can invest more into a character. So yeah. if you give males, like if you supplement their food, often you'll find out that they produce more elaborate sexual traits than males right. that are on a standard so, diet. So they might be more colorful or... Yep. Um, yeah. or, or have a have a longer longer genitalia in this yeah. case. It, did you have you tasted that? If these fish then have a... Like so, a so the results actually of thinking about it are a little bit mixed. So we have that that two-choice study where the females get to choose who to associate with, and that shows that they preferred males with the longer genitalia. We have some studies of males just using natural variation among males where we find a correlation between the relative size of the male's genitalia and their reproductive success. However, we also did a study where we artificially selected on genital size, which was a mammoth study that took about five to seven years. So each generation we selected males with either above average or below average genital size. And we did this for, I think, for seven or eight generations. And by the end of that, we had divergence between our different breeding lines. And the same way as you would select, for, I don't know, floppy ears in a, in a dog breed. We, you know, we had floppy ear, you know, dogs with shorter and longer ears. We have fish with larger so you, and smaller so you genitalia. Sele- yeah, okay. So you're selecting them for the size of the genitalia. Yep. And so you had a, a breed with big genitals and one small. Yep. And then we allowed them to compete for access to females and looked at their reproductive success. Yep. And in that case, we didn't find any difference in their reproductive success, why? which was a little bit surprising. <laughs> Do you have a theory about why or a hypothesis about why? Well, I guess, I mean, there's many, there's many possibilities. Should I, I should say hypothesis. Right? Like, <laughs> I think, well, yeah. To be strictly <laughs> like the scientific. Or an educated guess. <laughs> educated guess. Well, what's the difference between an educated guess? Like a hypothesis is something you're going to test experimentally. Yes. Educated yeah. guess is maybe what leads to a hypothesis. Like that's yes. I guess pondering. the hypothesis is more of as a formal thing that is, yeah. as you say, that you're and, planning to test. And, yes. and when, you know, if we're yeah. being like yeah. following the scientific yeah. uh cultural norms we should like a theory is something that's been well tested um but we don't want to yet or ever say that it's beyond um, question because science is always 
yes, questionable, you, right? Yeah, you've got a theory built up of a, which has a bunch of hypotheses in yeah. it, and um, so which I shouldn't, you can I, then I shouldn't go and call test. it a theory. I call it. <laughs> what is your education? <laughs> which I get, so maybe the difference here is this is my post hoc attempt to explain it. Yeah. But it's again it, these all these concepts blur, right? Because I would draw on general principles. So what I would say in this case is we saw a correlation before between a male's genital size and his success. But correlation is not causation. So it is possible, for example, that maybe those males with larger genitalia were more successful, not because of the genital size, but because uh, they were in better condition, which leads to increase in genital size. But that may have made them uh, faster swimmers, for example, which could then be the cause of their increased mating success because they were better at finding the females swimming alongside the female. Yeah. So there's other factors at play potentially yeah. rather than a female just choose it like when it's not just about female choice yeah then also like reproductive excess maybe involves being able to swim fast yeah and remember because yeah. these in these particular fish the males spend a lot of their time sneak mating with females or forcibly right. copulating right. effectively whereas Prit, in your other experiment that you mentioned it was the fit the female got all the choice and the males she no, did yeah no chasing or sneak exactly so that implied really. that the female would be choosing these males but then there's so many other factors going into who yeah. actually succeeds and so i guess that in some ways, this is a, a very small example of a general principle of how you do science of trying to distinguish between correlations and causal relationships. So many areas, like with humans, for example, most of the studies you look at um, or you'll see in the popular press science journalism are with humans involve correlations you know people that drink a lot of red wine mm -hmm. live longer or live shorter but so many other things could vary with drinking red wine your level of income your education level all kinds of things so it's very so hard to say how do you know it's definitely it's... causative exactly right and since we can't um do a randomly controlled experiment with humans like put people in little boxes and yep. tell them what to do for their entire lives you can't it's uh, it's much harder that interference yep. of different may perhaps correlated yep. factors right that, yeah exactly we have to be yeah. very creative in thinking about ways to conduct a, an experiment with humans using other methods sort of like natural yeah. experiments like some, well Is that, do you know of anyone's um like tried feeding mice red wine or something <laughs> i actually that. do have a friend who did a meta-analysis and i unfortunately forget the name of the chemical in red wine it begins with an r I want to say Restival, but I'm sure I'm mispronouncing it. Right. But he actually had looked at the data from the available studies um, manipulating uh, amounts of this particular chemical, and yeah. I think there was a relationship with lifespan. So yeah. this was so, so basically the word, yes, mice have been given the, the, the chemical in question. That, that they think is healthy. healthy. Yes, yeah. and so there was a little bit of evidence for that. That it, but was, that it did help them. That it did help, yeah. yeah. So it's just, so hard to, then it's hard to say, though, like if you eat a diverse diet of lots of fruit and veggies and other stuff, well, I mean, we know that's good for you, and perhaps it's you don't need the red wine. Exactly. So then we come to the issue of, yes, this yeah. thing might have a causal effect, but is it how strong is the effect? How yeah. comp And then, of course, how strong means compared to other things. So I think before so, we were talking off air about this, you can show that something has a causal effect, but that doesn't mean it's particularly important in the real world because there are so many other things going on that may be more important or that swamp that particular effect. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, difficult. <laughs> Doing this sort of science is quite difficult. Right? Yeah, yeah, it's it's challenging. Yeah, to, yeah. to work out exactly what's going on. Yeah. 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 Um, so... 
I mean, is there any other research you think would be particularly interesting to talk about? Perhaps you've done. I th- we, well, what, what's another little topic? Well, so, well, let's just let me let me just wrap up that final thing yeah. with that fish, just to be clear. Then, so we have the co- we have the correlational data on the the males with larger genitalia getting more mating success, and then the experiments in this case, the closest we could come to an experiment was where we did this artificial selection to create these lineages, right? Mm. So that was our attempt to do an experiment by creating larger and smaller type genital types, and then looking at their mating success so, so just to wrap that up so that was the thinking there is that was the, the closest we could get to an experiment to only manipulate that characteristic like for example if you knew the genes for that solely if there were genes that solely determine the size of a trait you could possibly do something with those particular genes but in the absence of knowing that the closest we could come to that is to use breeding designs to artificially select for those characters to try and manipulate their size and other things that are correlated with that within the individuals themselves would be dragged along right so it seems it seems what you're doing there is you're pulling out the different you pulled out one factor perhaps that that influences mating success which is around female choice over genital size and it seems like well the girls like the the guys with the bigger penises or like penis analogous structure right yeah but then there's a lot. Then you've shown that well. There's obviously some other factors at play because when you take out just strictly female choice and then um, allow other factors and postulating that they could be like the speed and yep. other things that it, that doesn't. What well, then you found that the smaller penis fish are actually doing better. Or well, they were doing just as well. Just as so well. it wasn't that they were doing better. So it's just so there was no there was so no what, relationship. What you, then it so it's like, yeah. looks like then there's other factors at play. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, yeah, that paints that picture of the complexity of everything, like you were saying. Is okay. that is that right? Yes. Yeah. That there's yeah. lots of different factors and yeah, yeah, and it's could you could spend a lot of time like trying to tease them all out and look at exactly. Yeah. Yep. Um, so I'm, I'm trying important? to. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I, I, I'm now slightly regretting that I started with that example. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's a, it's a, I'm sure people that know me will be laughing. Why am I talking about this? Yeah. So you're asking about other things we do. Yeah. So another thing we've done with these fish recently, in fact, the paper came out um, in the middle of the week um, from one of my PhD students, uh, Upama, uh, was looking at the relationship between male age and their reproductive success. And I think this is, again, a nice little illustration of the importance of teasing apart correlation and causation. So there are many studies, for example, that will say, oh, younger males are more successful than older males or older males are more successful than younger males when it comes to breeding. But the problem with that is that so many... Lots of, sorry, lots of studies in these fish or in just... Oh, no, generally speaking, sorry. Oh, okay. To be clear. going to vary compared with different species yes it, it does vary across species yeah. but and there's this general principle that age has an effect on reproductive success and i don't know if anyone's really systematically gone through and looked at what the net effect of male age is on reproductive success but the net effect you mean what, on, average? On, on average sorry yes that, sorry yes on average yeah thanks okay. yeah that's a much better way to put it than but mine. Sh- surely that's going to vary you know some species you Younger males going to do better in other it, it might be, but there might still be an average trend overall. Because right. as a biologist, it's very hard to – you want to look for general patterns. And right. so otherwise you just got it one species at a time and we've got millions of species to deal with. So to, to, to make any real progress, you have to look for general patterns. 
And so you're right, some species that might be younger, some at older. But then your question would be, well, if we have enough data, we look at enough species, can we start asking why in these species is it younger? Why in these is it older? How do these species differ? Right, and so some general principle about yeah. um, perhaps strength or uh, vigor is maybe more important in because they've got to be able to swim fast in order to... Right, or, or maybe in some species there's, a, there's gradual accrual of resources which might uh-huh. favor older males. Maybe they're in a more so stable environment and yeah. males build up resources over time, so, so their older males might be favored. So theory about... So we'll, yeah. we can postulate that if, if, um, yeah, if it's a situation where animals can accrue resources, then older males tend to be favored in terms of reproductive success. Yes, so that could be our working hypothesis in this case. And once we've got enough data to test that, then we've got a prediction from our hypothesis and then we can go out and test it in additional species and see if it holds up or not. So you were saying you're a PhD student. Yeah, so so Palmer's been looking at this, but what's interesting in her study is, again, this idea of teasing apart correlations to look for causality, is if you think about male age... And I'll come back maybe later. You can ask me why I keep going on about males and not females, and I'm happy to explain that. Why the problem with male age is it's correlated with a number of other things. And the most obvious thing that male age is correlated with is their past mating history. Older males, on average, will have had more sex, more, more matings than younger males. And we know from studies looking simply at varying the amount of matings that males have, this can often have a detrimental effect. Basically, mating is costly, energetically time-consuming. If you think, well, let's not think about humans. Let's think about um, animals where they have to put a lot of effort into courtship. A frog might be calling for hundreds of hours to get a mating. So older males have put a lot more effort into mating. So age and past reproductive effort are correlated. So... How do we know whether old males, for example, are less successful because they're old, inherent, it's an inherent property of being older, or because they've mated a lot? So experimentally, what you would like to do is tease apart age and past mating history. And that's what uh, Upoma did. So you, so you found with these, this fish species that you're working on that that the older males are less successful? Well, actually, that's, again, that's the beauty of science, is that we initially had assumed that old males would be less successful. But so what what, um, was done, what what Apoma did was she got young and old males and she kept them as virgins. So they had exactly the same mating experience. In addition, then, at a certain point, each the males, young or old, were provided with three three weeks of mating experience, given a female for three weeks. So you end up with four kinds of males. Old males with three weeks mating experience, young males with three weeks mating experience, old virgins, young virgins. So you now have a situation where you've experimentally teased apart the effects of you can look for the independent effects of age and past mating. And, okay. and so that's what she did, and then did a series of tests with these four kinds of males. So the study that was just published was taking sperm from the four kinds of males, equal amounts of sperm from the four kinds of males, mixing it up, and then artificially inseminating females with the sperm, and then looking at which males gained the most paternity. Okay, so who basically has the most vigorous, healthy sperm? 
sperm. Yep. Counts. Which yeah. which males have the um, the most competitive sperm? Right. Yep. Okay. And I'm I'm going to guess it's the younger ones. Well, as I said, but I guess with the fish, they're all pretty young anyway, so maybe it doesn't matter. Well, except they're old relative to their lifespan. Okay. So, so what, was, what was the result? So the answer was the the old males actually did the best. Okay. And got significant, the best significant, significantly higher um, level of paternity. Yeah. Okay. Which was again counter, and we did not expect that. Which I love. That's the that's the reason to do science. Is it's so easy to argue something, and it sounds logical. Oh, of course, the old males will do badly, but in fact, in this case, they they did well. So, yeah, so. right. But I mean, I I'm, I'm going to guess that you know, like on a cellular level, maybe they're not so different from us. So that like, so your gametes or whatever, maybe they're not really that old. They haven't reproduced and so many times. Whereas like at at the whole organism level, they, they're more short-lived than, say, humans, which are very long-lived. So, like, the, the gamete quality or the sperm quality stays, perhaps stays good for as long as humans, but... The, well, yeah, I, yeah, I, 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 see, I see where you're going at it because it's constantly, new sperm is constantly generated, yeah. so it doesn't matter if it's made by an old male or a young male. But there are differences that we know in humans, for example, and lots of mammals where um, sperm count declines with age, the number of abnormal sperm... Decline, uh, uh, increases with age. So, but that's, but that's at say you know fifty or you know like after, mm. like we're talking about decades, right? Rather than yes, we are. But but again, more. but by the what 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 constitutes a twenty-year-old human and an eighty-year-old human in the fish might be the difference between a male that's three weeks after sexual maturity and thirteen weeks, mm. because their breeding season, for example, here in Canberra, is between December and March. Mm. So an old one is basically one that's twelve to fourteen weeks old. So, so did you look at other aspects that affect um, differences in breeding success between young and old males? Uh, yes, so so those so the other results aren't published yet, so oh, okay. I'll, I'll leave it to uh, Pomo to, <laughs> to okay. present those in the future. But right. there's some interesting results there as well. Yeah, so okay. we so the reason just to explain why we did this artificial insemination of sperm is it's biologically relevant because in this fish, as I've mentioned, the males are very persistent and constantly forcibly copulate with females. So the females end up being inseminated by many different males. Yeah. So sperm from different males competes with inside the female for access to eggs. So this is this idea that sexual selection, sort of selection on traits that increase reproductive success is not simply about females choosing males or males fighting each other and using their, their tusks and their claws to gain access to females. It's competition between the sperm itself is very important. So this is a, a strong theme in behavioral ecology is the importance of post copulatory sexual competition right but you 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 when you were artificially inseminating them you were doing it individually they weren't or was it with the sperm mix? no it was a, it was a sperm mix so it was oh, a okay. mix from so from all four kinds of males so if oh, you want okay. to yeah so it's those but then you can tell which the paternity that's right by genetic analysis yes exactly so yeah. we have to genotype of, the, offspring of the offspring and then match them to the fathers and see who was the the father of that particular baby okay so, um, what broad conclusions uh, can we draw about um, sp sperm competition, how it functions in the animal kingdom? Uh, well, I think from this study, n not a hell of a lot from any single study. It's one of the things I've increasingly become aware of over the years is that 
people should be cautious about drawing too much inference from a single study. And I think the truth of the matter is what is required are large numbers of studies on the same question Which is really to tease common in the patterns. way the media presents science, right? There'll be one study comes out, and if it's got some splashy, sexy headline, then that will get widely publicized. Absolutely. And, and probably the public shouldn't really be paying attention to science at that stage. It's more down yeah. the track after many people have... Um, yeah, I think so. And, but I, it, it's a... It's a really difficult area because obviously you want people to engage with science and that's why I'm here today because I, <laughs> I want to convey my enthusiasm for science to people and tell them how wonderful it is. But at the same time, I do think there is a risk of just picking on single studies. It's a little, maybe the best analogy would be if you watch the um, economics report at the end of the news and they show this stock market going up and down. I think anyone that knows anything about economics knows it's complete nonsense to pay attention to that. It's just random little fluctuations. The day-by-day day The day-by-day day stuff is nonsense. What matters is the long-term patterns. Yeah. But they, they like to report the day-to-day -day stuff because that's how we have traditionally presented news. So by analogy, in science, we're producing, we are presenting the day-to-day -day results that people are finding. What we really need to do is look at the long-term trends. So those would be done by the synthesis of the available data in, say, a meta-analysis where you put all the studies together, weight them by the sample size, the amount of information the studies had to try and look at what the general conclusion is. But that's you don't often see a meta-analysis being given the same publicity or same level of attention in the media mm. than you do an individual study. And I guess what, that's because it doesn't make such a good story. You can't talk about yeah. characters like this is this type of fish with this sort of penis. So yeah. you can't tell a story about it because it's about yep. lots of different um, studies and perhaps different species exactly. or what have you. It's yeah. a little bit better, actually, I would say, for maybe medical research that there is there, – I think there is a slight increase in the number of reports of meta-analyses where people say we've done looked at multiple studies and it does turn out, for example, that uh, – um, eating processed meats does increase rates of cancer. That's one I remember from a couple of years back, which was based on a meta-analysis. So the there is the opportunity in medical science to to present the the net results. But again, it's still as that new study comes out, it immediately gets a it gets a hit in the media if it's an interesting, intriguing result. Yeah, and then perhaps people walk away with the wrong impression in the end. The, and and I mean think. I think something a, a debate that's gaining currency or at the moment is um the problem replication replication crisis in science that people have started to go back and um try and redo experiments especially i think this is in the biological sciences particularly redo experiments and finding that often that they don't get the same result as, as what's been reported and then and that brings into question I mean, I mean it comes to you know even that individual study perhaps didn't uh Rep like accurately represent um, what's going on. That's absolutely. So this has been a, a problem. Well, a pro I'll say problem, but then I'll immediately qualify that in one second. It, yes, it's a problem, and it's been picked up in um, psychology. Psychologists have been very good at at starting to look at this. Biologists are now paying a lot of attention, and the medical community have also. Um, been leaders in starting to think about this rep so-called replication crisis. R reason I say problem with a little bit of hesitancy is there is a problem in the sense that there's clearly less studies are less replicable and less reproducible than we would like but it's not a problem in the sense that people should now think well this means science is terrible science is all we've got there is no other way to do things really you can 
call science what you like, but essentially it's evidence-based, trying to collect data objectively, analyze it objectively, and then reach conclusions and, and, from and it. And it's not always going to go smoothly. It doesn't always go smoothly. And yeah. so the issue here is how to do our science better. Yeah. It's not to give up on science. And the fact that scientists talk about it so openly, I think, is a reflection of the value of science because mm. they're not trying to sweep it under the carpet. Not, not trying to pretend that they know exactly what no, the answer is. No, no. And I, yeah. there's a definitely a generational change. I know that lots of mm. my younger colleagues are far more concerned about this than, than older ones. <laughs> what do, uh, it seems to me that people are often more persuaded by the person that sounds really confident. You know, they come in, they're like, this is exactly what's going on. But actually, you should be more persuaded by the person that, that has a more rational view of that I that uh, we're collecting data and like looking at it all and our minds are open to change um, and, and take a long time, I guess, to reach a high level of certainty and, and, and that are honest about the uncertainties as, as I think scientists are. And I think scientists are at a disadvantage because people often are more persuaded by the, the confident leader or the confident proponent of an idea, but they're actually the less reliable people because they're not uh, co co like thinking about the the data in a very accurate way. Um, yeah, that's true. And I think there's, a, there's obviously a healthy interaction between the two kinds of people. So I think scientists that you're in training is inevitably to be suspicious. So everything is qualified by mm. based on the current data. Uh, and of course, there, you do reach a point where you can be very confident about something. And that maybe is the point at which scientists need to shift a little bit. Like, for example, ev the evidence that evolution has occurred is overwhelming. Mm. The evidence and, and that natural that, like, selection people has, just like look at the, look at that theory of evolution again and again and again and just over thousands and millions of um different uh researchers or ways that you look at that yep it just it always comes up as making sense and yes. bearing out the results or explaining the yep. results that you have and so, and we so have at some... that point it'd be very hard to dissuade people that that's that's actually the the reality of the situation. Yeah, you have an overwhelming abundance of evidence. So at yeah. what point does a theory become a fact? <laughs> and it right. still remains possible that you'd discover something that would undermine the whole um, argument. It, you'd never rule that out. But based on the huge amount of data, you'd say, well, this is pretty clear that animals have evolved and that natural selection is the driving force that leads to the fit between an organism and its environment. Yeah. Where's and... Whereas perhaps as opposed to like the experiments that the research you've just been doing currently that I guess are on the cutting edge of whether penis size is important to female selection. What's the type of fish that you work on? Uh, mosquito fish. In, in mosquito fish, if that's really important. I mean, it's, it's possible that you made some error in that experiment and, and that someone redid it. And yep. I mean, I, I, I feel confident that you probably got it right, but it's, there's, it's, it wouldn't be like a huge revolution if you'd made some mistake and, and no. th that someone came out with a different result and then you'd be like, oh, okay, well, perhaps they, they don't care about penis size. And um, yeah, it's not like the theory of evolution. No, exactly. It's a, it's a much smaller question. I mean, the other important... Smaller question and less tested as well. <laughs> yes, yes, yeah. yeah, less tested. I mean, if, if everyone was as obsessed with that question as they were as the theory of evolution in 100 years' time... We would have... You could have similar result. levels of confidence about it, yeah. perhaps. Yeah, yeah. Ex exactly, exactly. Yeah. I mean, the other important thing to bear in mind with individual studies, so this is going back to this um, crisis of reproducibility, is that studies are often underpowered statistically, which is a fancy way of saying we don't have enough data 
to be confident in a yes, no answer or in a no answer. Yeah, so if so we you, see that something doesn't have an effect, if we don't have lots of data, it makes it very difficult to detect small effects. So we say, oh, nothing's going on here, but there could well be something going on. We just don't have enough data. Mm. So that's one reason why studies might not be reproducible. The other reason why there's a potential problem is because of the way the entire system is set up to favor producing a positive result of finding something. So as a science journalist, you're going to interview someone when they say that something happens, not when they produce a paper saying nothing happened. So the incentive for people is to present their results in a way that they can make a story that something happened. Mm. And there's many ways to do this, which are they're not cheating. It's not data it's not fraud it's not fabrication of data what it is is the selective presentation of your analysis or trying different analyses in the hope that one of them will yield a statistically significant result which implies that something is unlikely to have occurred by chance and you then focus on that as the way you present your study right so if i've got this right i think what you're saying is you for example i'm not saying you did but some um a lot of researchers maybe they might look at the mosquito fish and they do one test to see if females like males with bigger penises. They might do another one if they like them with purple polka dots and they might do another one if they like them with big eyes. And they they find a statistically significant result for just for the bigger penises and no no difference for bigger or smaller eyes, no difference for purple polka dots and no purple polka dots. And then they only publish one of those. Exactly. Um, and so, I mean, one thing is that skewers it because if you do enough enough different random experiments, one of them potentially could have a positive result that um, is just a fact of the fact that you... It's due to chance alone. Just by chance. Yes, yeah, that exactly. actually isn't representative of... Um, yes. So the, the, the fact so the, that females do actually prefer larger penises in mosquito fish. Yeah, the cliche is one in one in twenty studies because, because our, that's the our, level of sti- that one in twenty is what you consider statistically significant. Yeah. If yeah. something's unlikely to have occurred by chance, it's less than one in twenty. So if we do twenty by chance alone. Yeah, if we're saying oh, if it's like a one in twenty chance that this happened by chance, then if we do twenty different tests of different things, then we'll probably find one. Just yes. that even could have just happened randomly. Exactly. Like and this is a cool. real problem. And this can be a real yeah. problem in the medical literature because think about all the different ways you could look at the effect of a drug. Mm. So you might start off with thinking, well, does it reduce the mortality rate? Okay, it didn't. But did it change the, uh, the uh, quality of life? Mm. Did it decrease the number of headaches? Did it affect the blood pressure? In it, if you've measured a large number of characteristics of your, your study population and you explore all of them you're going to find some where it did have an effect and you if you then make you package your publication as being that that was what you were setting out to do you create a very false impression of the probabilities associated with finding that result because as you say you've ignored the other 19 non-significant results and emphasized the one significant result yeah and and you were saying to me before that you're, you're very interested in um I guess improving the quality of, of science and 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 in the dry the incentives driving, um, driving that and and I'm I'm gonna guess that I, like scientists are incentivized at least in Australia to to publish more so you get more points I'm not sure what the terminology is you get more credit from the government or from the 
uh, or your institution. Yeah. It, the more the more you publish and the higher quality journals you publish, so that incentivizes like if you're incentivizing people to publish more, then they're trying they're probably trying to squ- get that reproduction. That they perhaps have less the statistical significance of their um, analysis maybe be reduced. So that- well, well what, what I think what happens is, yes, so you, re- you are rewarded for producing lots of papers, so that's your, that's your measure of output. So if someone's, like if, some, if a taxpayer comes into the lab and says, well, what do you do? I say, well, I do research and I publish papers. And it's a natural thing to say, well, how many do you publish? Mm. Like how many studies are you getting the out there the better. and the more the better would, and, and would seem are, to people and, would and, think that was a measure of how hard but, i was working but the quality of the papers is a much harder yeah. thing to determine exactly and the problem with publication is that there's pretty good evidence that a significant result is easier to publish than a non-significant result so the speed at which you publish mm. the journals in which you publish whether it's a high profile journal that would be picked up by science journalists or a, a minor journal all depend on getting significant results so the entire significant ins- result which means that there is there is an effect of the treatment there is right. a relationship the, the between the things female mosquito you fish at. like bigger penises rather than small penises yes. like yes. nobody's interested in the result yep. that female mosquito fish don't care about yeah. penis size. That's not something that someone's going to no one's interested or in the media. Is no, no one's interested in the fact we tested this drug and it had no effect on yeah. anything we cared right. about. Yeah. So you've created a, an entire world that's biasing scientists to focus on publishing these, a subset of the analyses or a subset of the relationships that they looked at. And so they're not cheating in the bigger picture, as I say, they're not, it's not, this is not about fraud. This is simply about the literature being unrepresentative of what we did. And that just creates a hugely skewed world. Mm. Understanding of the world. Yeah. Right? yeah. Yeah. So do you have any suggestions about how those incentives could be changed? or that It's the, incredibly diff- difficult. And I think that one of the solutions has to be to remove the incentive structure. And that would require, I think, a change in what would determine whether a person is promoted or not in their career for example like mm. i mean scientists are like everyone else right we need to earn a crust mm. put food on the table pay off the mortgage and people want to get promoted so and if they want you, to get jobs in the first place and they want to get exactly yep. secu- yep. like um job security right yep so that's and getting jobs in the first place is yep. kind of where you start learning bad practices that and then it, and persist. Very, and I believe it's a very competitive world in academia. It's not It's not easy to it's be an in, academic. It's and, very hard to get a yeah. job. Yep. Yeah, Most especially the pla- if you want a job, say you want a job in Canberra or if you want a job in Wollongong or whatever, it's that's even more difficult. Often like academics are flying, you know, moving all over the world in, exactly. in pursuit of their specialty and the... Yep. Um, and the job that no, you have to be very mobile. It makes it yeah. very challenging for people. That creates um, a lot of the gender problems, maybe related to the ease with which men and women can can move, or are prop- or are willing to move. So a lot of it is linked to that. Um, but I, so I think the solution is probably something you're, you're to professionalise being a, lot, a scientist. There's a lot more men in academia than women. Like you're in, saying, in the, in, seventy to thirty. Well, in the in 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 STEM, in the science, STEM technology, science. engineering, maths, oh, okay. it's it's very, it's still male biased. It's yeah. improving if you look at the new generation coming through, but it still hasn't got anywhere near close to fifty fifty. Which we could debate what the what the 
correct in inverted commas ratio should be or proportion. But if we took as a default starting point that we think that men and women are equally capable of doing science, which I personally think is a totally reasonable viewpoint, then we would expect to see 50-50 unless there are other factors at play. Right. So uh, we got a bit sidetracked. We're talking about um, the, how, do you, how do you set up the incentives and, and the, yep. the job opportunities like rating like if this person's a good science or they're doing good yep. good job or not how, how do you create systems so, to encourage the best work yeah. I guess yeah. I, I guess if you think about it logically the only way you could do that is to totally eliminate any consideration of number of publications or place of publication you would have to actually look at the quality of the studies or if you were to look at number of publications isn't, isn't that, isn't you would have a, to have got a system where at least the publication rate is not dependent on the significance of the results so then you could reward someone for working hard right. and producing more studies but it would be based on the number of studies that genuinely completed irrespective of where they ended up being published or how long it took to publish them yeah so right so one part of that the number of the the reward or the credits for the number of studies you'd need to get journals publishing yeah all, all of the science, whether or not it's an interesting or right. result that shows that this thing that you've tested makes a difference but to, to what the question, right? So that's one thing. And then the next thing is whether the more prestigious journals publish that stuff that's perhaps less sexy or interesting. Which seems impossible to imagine happening. <laughs> that, that say Nature, which mm. is one of the most prestigious journals and I guess the highest ranked in the credit system for scientists. Yeah, definitely would, for Would publish results that people find just totally disinteresting that this drug has no effect on yes people. It's, <laughs> it's really hard to imagine them ever doing that yeah yeah and also the problem with again just counting papers also wouldn't work because there's a ultimately a there is a creative side to science right we don't want to just pretend it's just this uh, the, the creativity i think comes in the kinds of questions you ask and the ways in which you find to to test the interesting questions you're asking. So there there should be rewards given for creativity and ingenuity. So you can't factor that out as well. You can't simply count papers or number of studies because you can do a lot of very tedious uh, cookie-cutter studies and you wouldn't want to particularly reward people for that. But then we're in this world of how do you assess quality? And as we know from any endeavor, like in the arts, for example, what makes a good movie? What makes a bad movie? How do we how do we how decide do that? And that's challenging. really challenging. And there's yeah. no I don't think there's ever going to be a perfect solution to that. Except we can all agree that some movies are everyone agrees are really bad, <laughs> and some are <laughs> well, really good. Well, maybe not well, everyone. Not everyone, but but a, a sufficient number of people that yeah. one would take it at face value. Yes, yeah. this is. A, well, I mean, that's to me is suggesting that some sort of democratic process amongst scientists, perhaps could could be work as a rating system that you get a large number of perhaps scientists in a particular specialist field to vote on the quality of a paper. I, I don't know if that perhaps has any merit. Yeah, there's the sort of ideas to do this, for example, by allowing more publication, you, taking advantage of the ease with which information could be published now at low cost of sort of follow-up commentaries on a paper. So mm -hmm. the paper would be published and then below it there would be people pointing out, well, this is a problem with the study. So all the discussion about the quality of a paper would be directly connected to it you know sort of hyperlinked to it mm. and that would then inform whether the paper is good or bad but again the, this requires such huge amounts of time and resources which i don't think we have the funding for mm. yeah 
So that that's it's a difficult it's a, it's a difficult issue. Yeah, isn't it? Yeah. Well, I, going back to whether or not, say, a prestigious journal like Nature would publish a negative result. I mean, I mean, one difference about the modern world to say thirty years ago is now we've got online publishing and there's no. Uh, like real physical limitations on how much you can publish. It's very easy to put something out, right? Yes. And perhaps while nature might not find its readership as interested in negative results, I mean, I think there's like a a reasonable degree of integrity in the leadership of these papers and they're interested in the the cause of science in general is my impression. And um, perhaps they could have a space... That, that isn't maybe front and center of, of where they, pub, you know, digitally publish the research that they publish, but they could make an, you know, a, a real effort. Like this is an, this is a problem with science, acknowledge that. And we're going to publish negative results, specifically when they're overturning stuff that's been previously published that says that this is a positive result. We want to weight that by yeah, encouraging the, the- people to publish something that overturns it because that's a really important thing to do. It is important for how science and itself works, but you've got to remember that a lot of these publishers are commercial and they have vested interests in but, but maintaining what is the, their profile. What is the cost to them? Oh, so you're saying if they've published something previously, they don't want to then say, oh, we got that wrong and we published something that actually is perhaps more questionable. Than well, yeah, maybe you're right there that, that it, it would seem to be a smart move on their part to have the follow-up studies that do or don't replicate a given high-profile study they initially published to or someone else include or those. someone else published yeah it's so that's yeah i mean you, you I, can't I see like a scenario like I, I feel like the, like they could gain a level of respect for that and saying look we want to be mm. the most trustworthy and and driving yeah. forward the integrity of science and um you can build a reputation on that as well and and because there's no limit on on data you know you can publish as much as you like it's not like it's just the one magazine you know that costs money to print and distribute yeah as previously but i think culturally people are still in that mindset that that's the way it's that, that's be. the way it's that's the way it is and it's right. very very hard to break that even mm. even though i'm aware of all the problems i still someone has a paper in nature or science i'm oh wow that's great Congre- sure. you know and i'll say send them an email congratulations well done which but, i wouldn't do if they just published in you know, some small, smaller journal, because there is some signal. There's probably a signal of the creativity of the study, perhaps more, perhaps more than the likelihood that the result is correct. <laughs> yeah, right. But perhaps they could partition. You know, this is the, the the sexy creative studies, and this is like another area of our journal that we that we're putting in there for the in the sake of the. Sp- the open science movement to balance mm. that bias towards yeah. um, like the, the bias that you're talking about. But, I, but I guess the bigger, I guess the solution that's probably more popular is simply to try and get the commercial publishers out of science. Like for example, now with, with preprints and again, in principle, it should be cheaper to do it online. If governments were to say, well, we're and tax, the taxpayer was to say, well, we're spending all this money paying people to do research why are commercial publishers making a profit out of this? Why don't we also set up systems for the publication of the results and take out this commercial element which mm. needs to sensationalize results and create these prestige factors? Why don't we try and set up journals? Yeah. So like we've paid for a lot of the science to be done. Why is that captured in the commercial yeah. world and why isn't it 
Yeah. Published I mean, it's a very you. perverse system. So yeah. I think a lot of people are not aware that not only does the taxpayer pay for the research at some level often, um, although I, I hasten to add often they pay a lot less than they think for specific studies from my own experience. And people said, why are you doing this study? You're wasting taxpayer money. And I go, well, you know, the truth is it's not that expensive a research and it's employed several people and so on. But leaving that aside... The other cost that then comes in is you actually often have to pay to publish nowadays. To make the publication available online, you might pay $3,000 to produce that paper. And some of the big journals like Nature, the, the amounts they are asking now for publication is such that I think many Australian researchers actually don't have the money anymore to pay. So They have to pay the publisher to publish their research. Yep. And then on the other end, you have to pay to to read or access the research. Yes, and then the university is paying for a subscription to the journal. And so what I, what I don't understand is what really are the journals doing that, that contributes that much? It seems like that's not that difficult a job. I mean, and, and because they they actually assess the quality of the, the journal articles by using the free labor of academics. Yes, so at every stage in the chain, it would seem yeah. that they're not adding much value, except that they're coordinating the exercise. Yeah. And the truth is, I mean, I have conversations with some colleagues about this who go, yeah, we shouldn't be using these commercial publishers. And I go, okay, but look, we're a, we're a let's say behavioral ecology, we're a mm. field with maybe, a, I don't know, 1,000, 2,000 active people at any given moment. It's quite hard to, even among that large number of people, given the relatively few number who have permanent jobs, to get enough people together to run a journal, publish it, set up the, the website, it would be a challenge to do that. Of course, there would be all the savings if all the universities involved withdrew their subscriptions to the current journals and then centralised that money to allow that particular research area to produce its own online journals that could that could work but it's a huge exercise in coordination yeah and then this thing international cooperation to to yeah. start these non-commercial yep. journals and as we know anything that involves international cooperation is fraught with difficulties mm -hmm. that's why we have but politicians and diplomats but it's an extremely important thing for us to get better at doing as well yeah so yeah i mean that sounds like that makes sense to me yeah that there'd be a direction to head in so there's plans afoot in, in Europe as Plan S, and I forget all the details, but it's essentially a desire to try and make sure that all the articles are open access in journals and that taxpayers will no longer, that, that researchers won't be able to publish their work unless it's open access and freely available to the public, which sounds great, but again, it does create all kinds of problems because many academic organisations at the moment depend on the money they get from journals that are owned by commercial publishing houses who give then so, give some of their profits back to the academic society so that it can run conferences or have small travel grants for students. So the whole economy and ecosystem is set up with the commercial publishers in it and any changes to that, you have to think about all the downstream consequences right. in terms of who gets the money. If you, if you take away the money from the commercial publishers, where does it go? Does it go back to the researchers to publish their results or does it get absorbed into central administration of universities or somewhere else so yeah. it, it's not it's not straightforward it's straightforward yeah but i yeah i think important and interesting yeah thing to, to follow how this, this yeah. evolves okay well i think mike got to wrap it up now I, I found it absolutely fascinating talking to you and thanks so much for coming on the show thanks tom